This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Conversations. So we're going to start. Uh, first of all, thank you all so much for making it here. Uh, I know the traffic is hectic today because of the visit of the president. So I hope it wasn't very inconvenient. Uh, thank you, Prashant and Dinesh. Uh, not just for making it here, but for this book, which uh, I learned something from my mentor, Madhu, that don't ever go for an interview without reading the book, uh, which most people do. So I can't promise that I always follow that, but as often as I can, I try to follow that advice. Uh, so um, I, I still haven't read the full thing. There's see that much still left, but I can't tell you when you read this uh, how uh, important you realize this is because the two industries that are supposed to be recession-proof are healthcare and education, and education is maybe healthcare. You will fall ill whether it's a boom or a bust or whatever else it is, and therefore how that industry operates. Yeah, come, come, please have a seat. We're just getting started. That wedding's. <laughs> Well, actually, no. <laughs> Weddings are... Maybe people get married, but what they spend will depend on the state of the economy. So, uh, this conversation is going to be just that, a conversation. I may... Uh, my questions may be a little long because I think it's important uh, everyone understands the context of the question because a lot of the stuff in this is very technical. Uh, so, uh, I will go to two or three specific uh, instances or cases that, that I have chosen. Uh, but I will start off with a couple of broad general questions. So, uh, which camera? That's the camera on me. So, the truth pill by Dinesh Thakur and Prashant Reddy uh, is something I would recommend. Uh, people who are interested in uh, making sure our healthcare turns out right do read. So, the big question, you know, there are so many instances on this of uh, lapses, uh, corruption, alleged, uh, you know, people bending the rules and systems that can have devastating effects. And we have seen that in some cases and many that you have quoted and I'll ask you about a couple of those. That is one reality. India is the pharmacy of the world or developing world is one reality. How, how do you resolve the two? Uh, Dinesh, you want to go first? Yeah, uh, so I don't think that, you know, to me, there is no, um, I mean, there's no dichotomy between these two things. Certainly, I think that India produces a vast majority of genetic drugs, not just for, um, you know, what we call third world markets, right? You know, uh, poor countries in Africa and, and uh, Southeast Asia, but we produce a lot of uh, medicine for United States and uh, Europe, you know, very wealthy countries. And there's no denying that. The data substantiates it. The challenge is this. The challenge is that, you know, the quality of what we export to these countries is very different than what we actually sell in the local market or send to Africa or you know, sell in Southeast Asia. Both realities exist today. You know, in, our, in our life, you know, both realities exist. And they exist because that's by design. We have essentially engendered a regulatory regime that allows a certain quality of manufacturing for what we sell in markets where we have strict regulations and a certain lower standard of manufacturing when it comes to countries that either don't have the capacity to regulate or the regulators don't really understand what they are doing 
which India certainly falls within that, that category. And so <clears throat> both realities exist. The thesis of our book is, is very simple. If you think about healthcare, right, you don't think about needing healthcare as a part of your daily life. Think about what happened during COVID. It's in situations of that nature where you really think that you really need access to healthcare. But what was the lived reality during COVID? The lived reality was even if you're wealthy, even if you had a lot of money to pay, access wasn't guaranteed, was it? So if you don't think about these things when you need it, when you don't really need it, that the time that you actually need it, it's not going to be available for you. Um, you have anything to add, or can I come to you with the next question? Okay. Um, in in the book, uh, at one point, you know, I read that the India's first ever scrutiny of the Central Drug Standards Controls Organization (CDSCO) uh, happened in 2012, and I was like, I was, I mean, 1947, 2012 was the first scrutiny that happened. Until then, what was the oversight mechanism, if there was one? And ever since the scrutiny happened, what has the scrutiny found? What changes have happened since then? Yeah, so that scrutiny in 2012 was taken up by a department-related parliamentary standing committee on health and family welfare. So these are committees in parliament which have members from both the Rajya Sabha and the Lok Sabha. And uh, this particular committee tends to have all the MPs who are doctors as members. And this particular report was absolutely fantastic because these guys went into so much detail. They summoned documents, summoned officers, and they really put them through the grinder. And the final report that was put out in many ways formed like the foundations for our book because they were able to get documents, et cetera, that nobody else could find. And they openly have accused the CDSCO of you know, collusive behavior, perhaps corruption, highlighted the fact that files were missing. We are still at that stage in Indian drug regulation where the drug regulator does not know how to maintain files properly because the easiest way to evade a corruption charge is to have the file missing. So this was a fantastic inquiry and like Abhinandan said, it was the first until date, the only ever inquiry into the functioning of the regulator. Prior to that, there would be these expert committees set up by the government to generally advise, you know, on drug policy, but they would never go and conduct a forensic examination or an audit of how exactly the organization was working. So which is why things have turned out so bad. The moment you run bureaucrats, you let bureaucrats run a place, give them significant power, and then you don't have any accountability or oversight mechanism, is when things get rotten, which is why we are now at the place we are, where we just cannot trust the regulator or the quality of work that it's doing. What's interesting is that there have been many reports of the uh, Controller and Auditor General, right? They, there have been many reports that they've looked at, but remember when it comes to medicine, right? There are three aspects of medicine. First is affordability. Can you really afford that medicine, right? There are lots of oncology medicines, cancer medicines that are really, really expensive, right? Even middle-class families will think twice about affording those medicines. 
then there's the issue of access. If you live in a rural situation, right, rural India, you don't necessarily have access to the best quality medicine. That's the second aspect. The third aspect is quality. Most of the oversight over the 75 years that, that we've been independent focused on price, procurement. When the controller or auditor general actually looks at you know medicines, it's about did you run the tendering process properly? L1, the L economics, exactly. etc. So that was the oversight. What changed in 2013 is this committee basically because it had people who understood doctors, right? They understood the value, the importance of medicine. They took their time to actually study this thing inside out. And more importantly, I think they were very vocal about what they said. A lot of parliamentary committees, the, the reports that you see are inane in the sense that they actually you know, say very inane stuff. Yes, maybe one or two or three areas they'll say, okay, well, we need improvement. This committee did a stellar job. I mean, in today's environment where you know, we yearn for good governance, there are examples of MPs who actually did their job right. But the, the book uh, doesn't have the names of the members of that committee, right? Is that it's on the last page? It's on the last page. <laughs> I see. Book. But we wanted to end with some feel-good anecdotes. I see. So okay, because we mentioned where? a few journalists yeah. and bureaucrats, yeah. and so then when I get to that, I'll, I'll yeah. learn who the people of that well, committee. Punj was, yeah, was, because the book is otherwise can get a bit depressing, right? So yeah, we thought right. we'll end with yeah. some. Balbir Punj was on that committee. I see. Okay. Yeah. Pathak. He was a chairperson, so and there were two more MPs whose yeah. names, unfortunately, I don't yeah. remember. Right. 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 Okay. These guys really did a stellar job. So, um, by the way, uh, if uh, someone can just cue me when 40 minutes are up, then I can open it for questions from the audience, because that's the format we follow here. So, uh, are, are you keeping time? Huh? 40 minutes, you'll give me a cue? Thanks. Uh, and then, you know, if you have any questions, uh, uh, we can uh, put those to the authors. So let me start with, on the specifics, this, uh, something that made a lot of news for various reasons in the past is this Ayush ministry and it getting all sorts of new uh, things. Uh, so those of you who are aware, there is a ministry for Ayush. Uh, and recently it, it was, it got five, uh, the book has that, uh, the, the uh, 37.5 lakhs was the amount that was given by the first planning commission. Um, for uh, research in tradition, into traditional medic, medicinal systems. Uh, right now, it is at uh, some 14,000 crores. How much is it? 17,424 crores across these uh, five councils, which is uh, Central Council for Yoga and Naturopathy, Central Council for Research in Unani, then Research in Homeopathy, Ayurvedic and Siddha. Now that's that's a lot of money uh, that goes there. Uh, so my question is a um, as a uh, as someone who does take Ayurvedic medicines, because uh, I do believe it is science. But dispute that. Okay, great. <laughs> Go ahead. But homeopathy I reject because there's a gentleman called Simon Singh who actually taught me English for a short while when I was in class eight. He's actually a scientist who won a case against uh, the Association of Homeopaths in England, who had sued him because oh, wow. he wrote an article in The Guardian saying that this is not science, homeopathy is bullshit. That they sued him, he won that case recently, two years ago. Uh, so I have two questions and both of you can you know, take a stab at it. A, 
you have done major deep dive into this the amount of documents you've gone through the budgeting process you know the outcomes etc how much of this is actually science and how much do you believe is not a b um with this kind of huge outlay have we found anything um and and just to give you an idea they haven't said that anything traditional is nonsense in fact they've given an example of a gentleman with a very interesting name a chinese scientist his name is acha it's she oh it's it's the the two you you what that's how you pronounce it she acha she okay see that's the sex in me i assumed it was a man uh, but uh, her name is i've already it's two you you Uh, so i don't know if you get the tautology it's it's funny uh, but uh, she got this uh, nobel prize because she did this deep dive into traditional chinese herbs and found that there is a medicine called artemis yeah for malaria in chinese so there is good reason to dig deep into our ayurveda or whatever else it is because you know there have been all sorts of tomes written about traditional indian medicine so my question is a is it scientific b there is a good rationale which you have said for going into that c is that happening and if not what is a good way of spending that money because there may be some wisdom that can be extracted right so that's four parts so now you guys just can take all all four parts okay let, let should i start see ayurveda ayurveda's theory of medicine this tridosha theory and you know trying to balance the doshas etc etc i think that is like you know old uh, western medicine which had the humoral theory that the body was composed of basically four humors which you had to keep in balance so these are old outdated theories which were disproved around the 19th century you know when the cell theory germ theory came up in the 19th century we figured out that yes there's something's like something called a cell which is the basic constituent of the human body and there are germs when germs come and infect you they they are the cause of disease and it's not balancing the humors or balancing the doshas so i think at least at the level of the theory of medicine we need to accept that modern medicine has found the answers after a long time so the we need to discard the theories of ayurveda now coming to the other part of ayurveda which is they have documented a lot of herbs and plants etc which may or may not have medicinal properties over there we concede that yes you know there may be for example modern science has shown that neem has certain properties as you know anti infective properties etc etc so there may be cases like that and it's worth spending money and doing a deep dive into uh you know using these herbs as a lead for developing a medicine in fact that's how modern uh, pharmacology works uh, there are a lot of uh, modern medicines that you use which come from these plants and herbs including like chemotherapeutic anti cancer drugs the problem in india now is we don't pay enough attention to scientific rigor and a lot of the sign lot of the research that is being done is being done more as a branding exercise to build up this uh, you know this narrative that of ancient india being you know uh, uh, having made glorious progress in science 
So if I can give you one example, there was this drug called Ayush 64, right? So in the early 1980s, they had done some clinical trial. It was developed by one of these Indian government labs. They held a comparator clinical trial with uh, chloroquinine, which is a standard of care for malaria. And chloroquinine cured all the patients. This Ayush 64 barely, I think, cured about maybe 50%. And even those 50% could have been people recovering themselves. Now, modern science would tell you that this drug is a failure, right? So you continue giving chloroquinine. But as we uh, narrate in the book, when there were outbreaks of malaria in uh, many parts of the country in the 90s, the government was shipping these guys Ayush 64 tablets. And then again, during COVID, Ayush 64 made a comeback where this, these government labs repurposed it and said that you can use it to cure uh, uh, COVID. And there were government ministers who were going out in distribution drives and handing it out. That isn't good science. Good science is a randomized double clinical trial, blinded on both sides, and you follow the results and accept what happens. A third point I want to make is a lot of Ayurvedic medicines that you, you guys consume today are not even Ayurvedic medicines. Because what sells mostly in the Indian market is, a, is what is called patent and proprietary Ayurvedic medicines. These are not uh, cures that were, you know, originally written down in the old ancient texts. The government has basically allowed these guys to make new concoctions and sell them in the market. Originally, these, uh, they were not even sold as drugs, you know, they would be sold more as supplements. So for example, immunity booster or general anti-aging. So they don't go through the regulatory rigor of... Yeah, because what's changed in the last 10 years, about eight years, is that some, we're not sure what happened in the government, but these labs started tying up with private Ayurvedic uh, companies and started selling cures for very serious diseases, diabetes being one of them, right? Uh, arthritis, like these are all serious medical conditions. It's not like say anti-aging or herbal, you know, uh, just immunity building stuff. This stuff has serious consequences, which means these drugs should have been rigorously tested and that never happened, which is why, which is what opened the door then to Coronil and Baba Ramdev during the pandemic. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, Prashant has, you know, laid out the scientific rationale for why we believe this nonsense exists. I'll give you two examples and I'll talk a little bit about some of the, the issues that we see within regulating the space, right? I'm sure all of you must have seen television advertisements um, of, of this apparently one thing called Giloy that makes up, you know, Coronel, right? It was, the government was buying the stuff and distributing it as a part of the national, you know, uh, vaccination and, and COVID prevention stuff. Today, there is a hepatologist in Bombay, Abhan Agaral. She's demonstrated that Giloy is hepatotoxic. She's actually proved in patients that people have taken Giloy has have developed hepatotoxicity, right? It's a scientific fact right now. So the question then we have to ask ourselves is, what makes two ministers of Union of India, Harshwardhan, who's apparently a qualified dentist, and Nitin Gadkari, standing on both sides of, of the charlatan, 
trying to promote this nonsense. Why does that happen? Why does the government of India give credence to this? That's one question. The second is, why do we have a ministry of Ayush that has spent 17,000 crores of your and my tax money? And if you dig, dive, dig deep into this, the regulations that actually govern what is sold for these things, they don't even come in comparison to what happens with modern medicines. Yes, there's a lot of problem with modern medicine. I admit it. The, the, the regulator is, is corrupt, incompetent. But there is a set of regulations. They don't know how to enforce it, or they don't want to enforce it. When it comes to IU stuff, there are no regulations. The government says you don't even have to test them for efficacy before you, you put them on the market. So the point on, so then how do I reconcile with what Abhinandan said, which is basically, I take this stuff, it makes me feel better. Right? There are tons of us. I don't know how many of you do, but there are lots and lots of people in India who buy this. You know who's litigating on behalf of Ayurveda? Rickard Ben Kaiser. You think Rickard Ben Kaiser is an Ayurvedic company? They are the one who's litigating in, in, in the courts to try and prevent you know, the courts from imposing stricter guidelines on advertisements. Rickard Ben Kaiser is a, they're, they're capitalizing because this market exists, right? How do I reconcile the fact that Abhinandan feels better when he takes Ayurvedic medicine? You know, what, is, what goes for Ayurvedic medicine? The answer to this is the difference between anecdote and science. This country in the 1940s had a scientist whose name was P.C. Mahalnobis. He was the, 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 the father of the sampling strategy that became part of the basis of NSSO, which this government is hollowed out now. This country gave the world the ability to do sample size determination, to be able to say what our census would be, what the metrics of this country's progress would be. How did we come from understanding science based on sample size and figuring out what it does to individual anecdotes saying, I feel better because I get to take, you know, this concoction, by the way, that conco concoction, Abhinandan, you know, when you think about Ayurvedic medicine, the, the time that Ayurveda was practiced, there was a Ved who came to your house, who looked at your nadi, and he made a churn, you know, or, or concoction, and he gave it to you. Where, where do preservatives come in? The, when, when you go to buy a, a, a stuff that the, the Baba Ramdev bakes, you think that the stuff, stuff survives for months on end without preservatives in it? Who's testing for those? What interactions the preservatives are going to have with the concoctions that they're, that they're actually selling? We have no regulatory structure in place to test for it. So everybody goes happy. If I can give you a scarier answer, Abhinandan, mm. a lot of Ayurvedic medicine is also seriously adulterated. A lot of doctors report that, usually adulterated with steroids, because steroids give you immediate relief because they suppress the immune system. A lot of them are adulterated with nimensulide, modern-day painkillers. And if it's an Ayurvedic sex drug, you're going to have the ingredients of Viagra in it. That's not the one I was referring to. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about for my skin and hair. But, uh, but uh, you know, uh, to answer your question that they're so old, I, I saw an answer on WhatsApp. Uh, that I think Patanjali or someone is selling a rock salt that is thousands of years old, mm. but has an expiry date. Exactly. So <laughs> they said they, they found it just in time. But, you know, I just want to go back to the beginning when you started your answer, Prashant. 
that um, you know the the humorous the the humorous philosophy humor. behind medicine you know inquiry or however one approaches it uh, of how it was in india how it is in the west etc how is it in china because i'm just curious that uh, you know she won a nobel prize and she identified this autism yeah, yeah. Uh, what is chinese medicine based on and is there any chance that i mean you like for example when the dunkel draft was to come in the 90s they want a patent name and india said how can you patent name uh, so uh, if, what is the chinese medicine based on and in india is it possible that that kind of resource could get us a nobel prize or have some extract so basically the kind of research that this lady did was research that is done in a modern pharmaceutical company she found a herb she tried to isolate the active ingredient so modern pharmaceutical development happens like that right you'll you'll have a library of 10000 chemicals you keep testing each one of them and then see which one shows potential in the lab or on animal studies and then you scale that up to human clinical trials that's the modern scientific method so it's not like she used any principles of chinese medicine it was just that these old chinese texts had mentioned this herb as having you know perhaps some medicinal properties but back in the day you couldn't do molecular chemistry and you know break down to the active ingredient so even in the neem case that you mentioned the dispute actually was they had isolated the active ingredient uh the the the, the compound that had you know these this antiviral properties and they had formulated it to be stable in different conditions so then you can you know mass manufacture and store it so that's what they were actually seeking a patent over can i can i answer the question if you ask it yeah yeah please so i don't know how many of you are medical doctors here um and you know if you yeah, are one person who trains surgeons there oh okay good. I, i know that <laughs> that's great so um the two aspects of medicine are as follows from ph- basic pharmacology right how much of the medicine actually is in your blood stream right at over a period of time that's how you know you have to take it once a day twice a day or three times a day when the doctor writes a prescription for you right and what actually is it what actually is it is called the active ingredient and how much is actually inside your body when your body metabolizes and then excretes through urine and, and other other excretion methods right that basically determines how effective the medicine is going to be because that's that's called bioavailability within your body right what this chinese lady did scientist did she was able to extract the active ingredient in the bark you know of 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 the herb and basically put that through a a proper uh a development process for pharmaceuticals to say what is the concentration that actually treats a mal- malarial pathogen how effective is it in clinical trials they ran a proper clinical study and showed that this is artemisinin is actually effective in treating malaria i wish we had spent the 17000 crores doing that kind of work rather than giving it to 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 to, to rather than promoting basically the 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 the, the, the unfounded claims that are made by all of these medicines this is what the ministry of ayush spends money on you think they are actually doing research with it this, they they essentially support you know going out and and, and doing ra 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 around you know whatever the ayush ministry actually the ayush ministry produces um another <clears throat> macro question i have one more technical question and then we'll keep it a little wider 
um you know a lot of discussions around uh, um the covid response uh i find you know i i get both sides a little bit and my question is that do you ever feel the pressure or or stress of writing about something that is forever changing and evolving science in a bigger perspective i mean you know from quantum mechanics newtonian physics to quantum you know of course it took decades but now in medicine it's far quicker like i was listening to this uh, podcast uh, which i uh, guy really admire and they were kind of trashing fochi that's you pronounce his name dr fochi dr fochi now of course he was wrong on a lot of things as of many others but that's what we knew at the time and now we know differently so we will change maybe next year we will know different things we will change uh and that's more true for medicine than it is for anything else so what is the kind of pressure of writing a book like this where 7 years from now and not 700 years from now that you know some you know, quantum to newtonian you know say boss you know see we told you that uh, standing on one leg and rubbing your nails uh, you know stops hair loss uh, how cuz you have done a deep dive on this. how frequent are these changes and what is the risk of committing yourself one way or the other i mean see our focus more is on the rule of law and following established principles of rigorous scientific methodology so this scientific methodology of having you know double blinded randomized clinical trials which is the gold standard to prove whether a therapy works or not has developed since about 1940s it's been perfected and now that's the standard with to which everybody holds you if you want to prove that your drug is safe and efficacious now i don't see that this methodology changing that much there may be variations here and there but as it stands it's pretty solid it's pretty rigorous uh and as a instrument to finding the ultimate scientific truth i don't think it's it's going to change hopefully i'll be dead before they find a better way to do it <laughs> <laughs> so so we've seen this abhinandan i think that you know uh 10 12 15 years ago most of our medicine was chemicals right small molecule chemicals today we see a large number of biologicals in our medicines right we see proteins protein therapeutics biologicals but the way that we regulate that hasn't changed just because the the medicine has changed right it's no longer a small molecule chemical it's a large molecule protein biotherapeutic the process of understanding and documenting efficacy of that through what prashant talked about you know standardized double blind uh, clinical studies that me- that model hasn't changed because that's a statistical model that is used the same model the same basis that the nsso actually had at that point in time with mahanobis time statistics is used to actually you know to establish evidence that this is not an anecdote this is actually a repeatable you know a consistently observable phenomenon that's what statistics does right whether it's whether we're looking at you know health indicators of mortality or we're looking at a, whether the drug is going to work in enough of us so that the benefit to risk ratio just is justified right that model doesn't change science certainly will evolve i mean 5 years ago we didn't have this this you know as as many protein therapeutics as we have today and also to add it's just you know rule of law i think will be timeless right sure yeah as in there should be transparency there should be accountability of course uh, sunshine laws are important yeah. but we were just having discussion of how how that is also uh, changing now 
Uh, very early in the book, actually, you've cited this uh, case of a 1986, 14 patients died at JJ Hospital in Mumbai. And there was Justice Lenton held an inquiry commission. Uh, and a report that held the Joint Commissioner SM Dolas in Maharashtra and the Food and Drug Corporation responsible, and even the Health Minister resigned, Bhai Savant Singh in 1988. Uh, yet in 1998 in Gurgaon and 2019 in Ramnagar, 44 children died of DEG poisoning as well. Uh, A, in your deep dive into studying regulatory lapses and such things across the country, when did um, the brazenness come in and what happened after these two cases so the gurgaon case we don't know what happened we couldn't find anything the maharaj the jj hospital case uh, after we published the book a scroll had done a story on the prosecution the criminal prosecution in that case which apparently is still not over it started in 1990 and the criminal prosecution is still not over in the jj hospital case everybody's old I think a few people have also died, few of the accused. Uh, in the Ramnagar case, where uh, 12 children died in Jammu, there was initially, there was not even, and uh, you know, the newspapers were hardly reporting on it, which was very shocking, except for Tribune, because the deaths happened in Chandigarh, and Indian Express, the rest of the media barely reported on it. A lot of people just don't know that these deaths happened. So there was very little outrage. From what we've heard, a criminal complaint has been filed and some kind of prosecution has started. But given how opaque this entire system is, we're not able to confirm anything or look at a, a copy of the criminal complaint. So no resignations now? No resignations, no commission of inquiry. I know commission of inquiries have been discredited a lot in India given <laughs> the way some retired judges have acted. But if you look at the Lenton Commission report, so Justice Lenton was a sitting judge of the Bombay High Court. He held his entire commission of inquiry in an open courtroom. And the final report that he produced is absolutely brilliant. It's available online where he did such a deep dive into the corruption and you know various parts of the regulatory system and healthcare system that the minister had no option but to resign. And Maharashtra had to carry out some changes at the state level on how their drug regulator worked. So there are cases where commissions of inquiries can yield good results. Any, you want to take a stab at why yeah, no one so, resigns anymore? No, I think that part of it is also linked to the India story, right? I think what has happened is that in the late 1990s, so I worked in India in early 2000s. And I did have an opportunity to actually work with the drug regulator because my position was that I needed to do that at that point in time. I could see the, the, the seeds of, of, of this kind of you know, uh, 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 complicity and corruption at that point in time. It had changed in, uh, in 2000s. That's from my direct personal experience. My suspicion is when we liberalized, when the country liberalized, right? When obviously things became a lot more accessible, our growth picked up, our institutions did not because we never invested in institutions. We always, you know, we're, even today, we're a hero culture. In Bangalore, the day before yesterday, I was talking to uh, a scientist in one of the, 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 the institutions there, and she was narrating to me an, an, an episode which I thought was you know, emblematic of the way that we think about institutions. She was applying for a grant uh, at the Department of Biotechnologies, because most scientists you know, typically get grants from the government to work on stuff. 
and she was being given the runaround. And finally, after a long period of time, she approached one of the senior members to the DBT and basically said, look, you know, I mean, my, I can't continue paying my PhDs if the government doesn't give me money to do this. If you don't want to give me money, just, just tell us, then I'll let these guys go and I won't pursue this anymore. Because, you know, this, this rigmarole of trying to, to, to make it happen. And the answer was, oh, why didn't you come to me in the first place? I would have gotten your thing sanctioned in two days. And apparently it was sanctioned, and now she is conducting the research, and she's able to pay. My point is this. My point is the that we are, should make we are a hero culture, right? We want to know who the person is in the administration that we need to go talk to, and that person is going to try and you know, find the solution for us. That is now how you build institutions. Institutions are built even if the person goes away. It should still the work. The system works. should work. We don't do that. So, um, <clears throat> you know, this one case, being a diabetic myself, uh, in the book, there is a case of uh, a violation found in 2013 <laughs> in a company called Alfred Berg & Co. And they were substituting glipzide with another complicated sounding medicine. And the difference was one was 9,000 rupees a kg, one was 1,900 rupees a kg. Uh, now, the violation was found in 2013. The case was filed in 2014. No trial till March 2020. Uh, tell us a little more about this case. And with this as reference, how many such instances of clear violations are there which did not find the light of day? And in your investigation, and this book is one big ass investigation, is there any pattern of why this doesn't happen? Or is it because the media doesn't take it up? These are very technical stories that people don't understand. Uh, start off with what's happening to this one. Means this case was exceptional, you know, like swapping out the active ingredients in the tablets and selling one as another, especially for diabetic patients, is it's almost a death sentence. And what was exceptional about this case was that they sold half a million of these tablets to the Tamil Nadu state government for the government hospitals. They were literally cheating the government out of uh, this. Now, the, the silver lining in that case is that the drug inspector actually did an investigation. They did a pretty good investigation. They filed the case and they wanted to start the prosecution on why the trial has not started after eight years. The official reason we got was we're not able to serve the summons on the directors of the company who are sitting 100 kilometers away in Chennai. The prosecution is happening in Velour, in Velour district. Now that is unfortunately how our criminal justice system works. So this is an example where the drug inspector did her job, which was a lady drug inspector, but the courts have basically, the courts and the police have failed. Because I think a non-bailable, I'm not sure the warrant was issued. Basically, the cops should have summoned these guys, you know, got these guys and produced them in court. That didn't happen. But this is an exceptional case. I'll admit that your run-of-the-mill cases of, you know, substandard medicine are cases where there isn't enough active ingredient in the drug, which means it's supposed to have, say, 100 grams of antibiotic, of an antibiotic, it'll have only 50% or 40%, or the drug doesn't dissolve adequately into your bloodstream. And there are also these, a few scary cases where in the case of injectables, uh, they're found to be contaminated with bacterial endotoxins or uh, glass particles. 
because in the punching process, the packaging process, it happens sometimes. So a problem in a lot of these cases, the way the system is designed, they've come up with prosecution guidelines. There's a committee of drug inspectors which came up with prosecution guidelines, which has basically said, do not prosecute in all cases. Only if it is a really horrible case of adulterated or spurious drugs, in those cases, you go ahead and prosecute. In most of the other cases, we will set parameters that are different from what are actually there in the law for quality standards. So there's a body called the Indian Pharmacopoeia Commission, which writes out the quality standards in a publication called the Indian Pharmacopoeia. The law says any of those standards violated means the drug is of substandard quality. What these guys have done during this prosecution guidelines is they have come up with their own guidelines. So they, the IPC says if uh, the active ingredient is less than 90% of what is labeled, the drug is of substandard quality. These guys say that only if it's below 70% will we launch a prosecution. So there are a lot of these technicalities. And the reason is that they don't want to clutter the court, they don't want to clutter themselves, economic reasons that the industry may collapse. What, what is the reason that they would do that? They have not stated any particular reason on the record, but our guess is that the, uh, the political signal that has been sent to the regulator for the longest time is to ensure the growth of the industry. So in this 2012 Parliamentary Standing Committee report, the, the MPs note with astonishment that the mission statement of the drug regulator was not to protect public health, but to ensure growth of the pharma industry. There's a different department in the government called the Department of Pharmaceuticals under the Ministry of Chemicals, which is supposed to you know, boost the growth of the industry. So after they got a dressing down, they changed their mission statement. But changing the mindset is going to so take a lot. it's coming from more. there. So it's, it's so the, because the, it's only success story in India, right? When it comes to manufacturing, like relatively high-tech manufacturing, the pharmaceutical industry is the only success story. So they don't want to uh, do anything to slow down the growth of the industry. There's a, if I can, one last statement. There's a very famous statement by a former drug controller, General G.N. Uh, Singh where he said that if I had to apply American standards of quality to the Indian industry, I'll have to shut down more than half the plants. Yeah. He said this on record in an interview. Wow. There's a chapter on the gold standard in, in America of, of how uh, they regulate and they test. But uh, I've just been told that it's time to go to the audience for questions. But before we do that, Dinesh, I had one last question that, that I'd like to ask you. Writing a book like this is full of, and it is full of such instances, specifics with, you know, when the warrant served, when the prosecution started, when affairs are filed. How tedious was it to write a book of this scale and this detail? Because it is not a, you know, general, uh, which is, you know, my expertise. Uh, uh, what were the roadblocks you hit? How many for every case that you have stated here with some specifics, how many did you get nothing on? And if you could just speculate a bit, if you'd like, for every case recorded here of stuff being found which had real life repercussions, do you think there'd be many that don't come to light? And what would that number look like in your, in your idea? So um, this book is a product of about 400 RTIs we filed. 
but you know we didn't get responses to all 400. But I'm not allowed to file an RTI. I'm a US citizen, so most of the RTI is filed by him. He followed up, he went through the appellate process, he's the one who adjudicated all of the stuff. So a lot of the groundwork was done by him. In terms of the data that we cite in our book, right? Uh, the question you asked, which is, are there more? There are only three states in the union that actually report publicly their testing. Gujarat, Karnataka, and Kerala. Only three states report. The other states don't, don't even report. They won't even tell you. Among the three states that actually reported, we, we did employ technology and scrapped the data, and we found out that in these three states, in the last decades, they, their internal testing found 7,500 instances of drug failures. Now, each of these drug failure represents a million tablets in the market. Okay, If you add the, the testing that Tamil Nadu does on their own and the, the National Drug Regulator does, uh, CDSU in 2016, the commission to survey, it's, a, it's over 12,000 such instances. So 12,000 medicines that were in the market failed the government's own quality standards. Now you tell me how many of these, the news business, right? How many times have you read about this in the newspaper? This not counting the big states like yeah. UPBR. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This doesn't register. This does not register in public conscience. And the reason for writing this book was because I went to see Dr. Harshwardhan after the Ranbaxi you know, case broke. He was least interested. We went to the Supreme Court with PILs because a lot of the work we had done that became the basis of this book was done at that point in time. Because the US government was telling me, I was a part of two, two uh, you know, committees that they, they, they constantly talked to, the Government Accountability Office and, and the OSTP, they were changing the regulations based upon what they did with the Ranbaxi. We went to the court and the court said that this is an academic issue. They refused to entertain the PIL. The same month, the court admitted the PIL saying, don't make fun of Sardars and to bring the Kohinoor back. Right, uh, those of you who may not know, I, I assumed I should have done a more detailed introduction. Uh, you, you do know Dinesh is the person on whose information the bottle full of lies is based. Uh, he was a whistleblower in uh, the case which showed what the pharmaceutical companies are actually doing with our health. Uh, so I should have actually uh, introduced him as that, but I just assumed That's everybody right. here knows who he is. Uh, so uh, we shall uh, open up uh, questions from the audience. Uh, if you could, you know, just uh, give whatever specifics you have and keep it short so we can take more in case we have. So um, anyone, uh, you want to start? Okay, let me start with the lady, then I'll come to you. Uh, yeah, uh, here, uh, yeah, there's a mic there. Great. So thank you for this discussion. Very insightful. Just, I, I think I should introduce myself. My name is Dr. Ashna Mehta. I... I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a PhD kind of a doctor. I'm an assistant professor at the Public Health Foundation of India. I have worked in pharmaceutical economics and policy for close to a decade now. So what you had to say was of great interest to me. And I haven't really gotten a chance to read your book yet, but hopefully I'll pick out a copy on my way out. Thank so yeah, so this is a wonderful opportunity for me to come across you. And we have been actually at the Public Health Foundation of India doing quite a bit of work around, you know, pharmaceutical policy regulation, right from, you know, the impact of price regulation policies, you know, on the economic side of things, uh, but also, you know, issues like the pro proliferation of fixed dose combinations. 
on the market, which is also kind of an exclusive feature of India and other under-regulated markets. So I was wondering what you think about the issue around FDCs and the, the confusion between the center and the state division of responsibilities that keeps on coming up every time we bring this up. And uh, secondly, uh, also, if we have the time, I would also like to hear your reflections on the new, uh, uh, new drug medical devices and cosmetics bill. And what do you think about that? Uh, what direction do you think we are going in terms of drug regulation in India because of that? So, I mean, let me start with your second question first. The uh, I mean, the nation we have been writing a lot about that that draft bill which was published in July. Now, I mean, we were really excited that the government was finally coming out with a new law to replace uh, this legislation from 1940s, which still regulates this you know, $40 billion industry in India. The problem is the new law is almost a copy of the old law and substantially worse in certain respects. So just to give you an example, one of the most frequently invoked provisions under the current law, which is basically if you're manufacturing substandard medicines, you can get prosecuted and there's minimum jail term of one year, maximum two years and some fine of 20,000 rupees. Now. Few cases are prosecuted, even when these cases go to court, nobody goes to jail because the judicial magistrate says simple imprisonment till the rising of the court. Now, this provision is, the way it's being interpreted is already lenient. Now what they are doing in this new law is they are making it a compoundable offense. And this is because pharma has pushed for it big time. Compoundable offense means that you just pay a fine and you go without any jail time. Now, this particular clause has found its way even into this Janvishwas bill. This Janvishwas bill, which Piyush Goyal moved in December to decriminalize offenses across 42 laws, they have included this provision now even in that. Now, in which country will you ex excuse pharmaceutical manufacturers whose products cause harm, mortal harm, to citizens of that country? This is not like you know a regulatory offense where you miss a date and you file, you know, you file some uh, uh, regulatory filing a little late. This is you're causing mortal harm. I think they need um, to free up space to prosecute journalists. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's the thinking that is guiding these policy decisions, right? Basically, somebody in the pharma industry has like an open door access to the highest. Uh, rungs of power in this country, that they're able to get these clauses inserted into the law. So they are not even thinking about this still from a public health perspective. They are still looking at it as facilitating the growth of the industry. No, before, you t before he goes on to the second point, he addressed the, the compliance aspect of it. Let me just address the, the regulatory aspect of it. The new law treats drugs and devices as equivalent. You know devices are not drugs, right? Devices actually have a lot more engineering built into it. Like, you know, if you get a knee replacement, it's not a, it's not a drug. It's a device, right? There's an engineering in it. It understands, you know, how the, the, the ball and socket joint works. The, the, the draft regulation treats devices as drugs. So that's a very simple example I'm giving you that there is really no thought process. There is no thought process behind, you know, thinking through, we need to revise this drug law, the colonial drug law that became, that came into existence even before we were independent. This is what they're doing. 
And one of the reasons this has happened is the drafting committee which drafted this law was com comprised of all sitting bureaucrats who are manning the drug regulatory structure right now. Generally, when the government sets up committees to draft new laws, they get outsiders because the danger of having existing bureaucrats sit on these committees is that they love the status quo. They don't want anything to change. I don't know how this health minister allowed this committee to be set up. Like ideally, the health secretary should have told him that this composition is completely wrong. Your first question on FDCs, uh, it's so basically, for those of you who don't know, fixed dose combinations are basically, you combine two or three different drugs together and you come up with a new uh, formulation. Now, there is some rationale for FDCs in treating complex med uh, diseases like TB or AIDS, because if a patient has to take 10 tablets, they will forget, so you combine it all into one or two tablets. In India, the reason we have so many FDCs is because it's become an instrument to evade the drug price control order. That's one of the main reasons that we are flooded by FDCs, because the DPCO will cover only one ingredient, right? This paracetamol. You combine paracetamol with something else, you try to wiggle your way out of the DPCO. On the legal aspect, it is very clear now that it is illegal for state, gov state drug controllers to issue these licenses. The central, drug, the central drug inspectors have the authority to institute prosecutions because selling drugs without the valid license is a criminal offense. But till date, we have not seen a single prosecution. What they instead try to do is to ban this drug using the administrative powers, which then starts up litigation that goes on forever. So they're, just, they're not even using the right legal instrument to shut down the problem. Uh, right. We'll just, I'll just go to that gentleman. Yes. Uh, then we'll come there. Uh, but I will say, you know, I'm glad you, uh, you said I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a PhD doctor, because I have heard Dr. Vijay Malia say, <laughs> address me as doctor, even though it's an honorary degree. So, so <laughs> great on the PhD. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Hi. Uh, uh, thank you so much. That's been an insightful evening. Uh, I'm Sumit, and uh, I am one of the consumers of uh, the drugs that we just spoke about. And uh, I and my family, everyone. So the question is, uh, I mean, from the lawmaker's point of view, what I could hear, who incidentally also happen to be the leaders for all of us. Uh, what I hear is like, this is all happening in a greater good. How justified is that? Or is that more of a will issue? So is that more of a, uh, an issue of a developing nation who's trying to probably establish something in the greater good? Or is that more of a will issue? Second question, uh, what do we do from here? Maybe my daughter who's a five year old, what do I teach her? Or what, do, what is it that we need to teach to the coming generations? So that uh, such, uh, uh, I mean, atrocious incidents are not really take, uh, I mean, the truth will part two, even 15 years from now. Yes, I don't know what greater good means. You know, this is one of those things that, that we use very loosely, right? What does greater good mean? Does greater good mean access to more people, uh, people more people access to medicine? My simple question is as follows, okay? Let's assume that if that is your intent, what is the point of actually making poor quality medicine access, accessible to more people? Whatever little money that they have, they're going to spend buying crap, right? So what, how do you, you have to define first what, a great, what greater good means, right? Then I will tell you, okay, well, that, whether that meets, the, meets the, the, the definition of that or not. 
simple example, right? The government has this uh, scheme called Jan Aushadi Yojana, right? This is the list of generic drug uh, stores, apparently unbranded drug stores, that are available primarily in second tier and rural areas because not the 98.5 Guardian won't go and open up a store in, in rural Bihar or rural UP, UP, right? But peel that up and see the quality of stuff that they're selling there, right? People complain about the fact that if you buy medicine from Janashiji stores, the moment you open the blister pack, the tablet collapses. What are you giving them at that point in time, right? If you don't have controls, see, marketing and, and projection and making grand claims of, of, of you know, greater good is all great, but you have to put the effort to try and make it happen, right? And that doesn't happen in our country. And to your second question, you know, what do we do? The, until, until very recently, right, it was very difficult to even have a conversation about this topic. The whole genesis of writing this book is that you, me, and everybody around us at least takes the time to read, right? You may not agree with, with our interpretation of the data that we present, but at least you get the data, right? If we are saying that, that 17,000 crores of your and my taxpayer money is being used by the government to promote false advertisements, at least look at that and say, it, you, let's not argue there's 17,000 crores because the government is telling us they're spending 17,000 crores. But at least have the conversation saying, is that a good user for money? Would you like that money to be used someplace else that potentially could give you a better benefit? That conversation was missing, right? That is the reason why we ended up sort of putting so much effort into trying to write this book because we wanted to present to you the data that we know, that we've collected, that we know how dysfunctional this is. You may not agree with, with our interpretation of Ayurvedic medicine or Yunani medicine or the way that, that we believe that that's actually pseudoscience. <clears throat> But at least, but it's a conversation that is talk. important, and and also, I mean, for all the fun that uh, at least many in the media make of U.S. media, which I think is definitely way better than Indian media. If you remember, Obamacare was such a huge talking point in even the most dumbed-down media there, uh, as was the opioid crisis. So, uh, and these are things that impact us all across socio-economic and and uh, brackets and geographies. So, we'll take one last question, and then uh, we'll have to call it a night. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Okay, two more. Okay, we'll come to you as well. Ma'am, you go ahead, then I'll come, come to the gentleman at the back. Thank you. So I have a slightly long uh, set of comments and questions um, uh, to make, actually. So I thought we will probably start the session with a very recent episode which happened, which is the Made in Pharmaceuticals. And I think it's, it's a glaring episode where we are not just dumping our people with uh, with the wrong drugs, but we're also dumping now African countries, uh, which, is, which is a natural thing to happen in, when we go generic. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, there, there are going to be some questions and some comments, right? So I, my name is Gauri, uh, Gauri Sarin, and I run a platform called Living Without Medicine. And I very strongly propagate uh, not having modern medicine, okay? And, Sorry, um, that's that's just that's just bad advice. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, I, 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 you know, there are many things I don't agree with you, and we this is an open discussion. So when I the first few sets of comments that I heard from both of you, um, I'm not anti allopathy. There's a difference between what I do and saying that I'm anti allopathy, and I'll explain my stand. One of my closest friends is a drug safety head of one of the largest pharma companies in the world. 
okay? And we've had many, many conversations around what is drug safety, how it's supposed to be done, how clinical trials are done, how data is supposed to be seen, and how badly it is done, not just in India, but many parts of the world. And which is the reason that drugs, even after a lot of billions of you know dollars of research when they enter in the market still the feedbacking system on whether they are working or not working um, uh, and you know what their side effects or adverse effects are is very very insignificant compared to what really goes into making it really safe okay and so this is really work in progress at i'm saying at the top levels uh, of of the world uh, and I'll be very happy to introduce you to her because she's now made a real name for herself in the US uh, pharma industry for the work she's done. Um, so, um, incidentally, also the, the one of the leading vaccines which was launched in the US uh, was led by her husband. He was one of the leaders in that uh, in the vaccine. And there is more than enough yesterday in India International Center. There was a long the day's talk on how vaccines have affected us. And it's not anecdotal anymore. I remember taking this up right to the Niti Aayog on the number of cases we came across of people affected by vaccines. Okay, and it's no longer anecdotal. Data is not coming through for various, of course, reasons. And we also know that pharma industry has a huge clout in the world, just like you've mentioned about India. And I think this is commendable what you've done. First of all, I really want to place it that what you've done is commendable because the fact is that there is very poor regulation in every aspect of India's administration and drugs being a very important critical part. What I did not uh, entirely agree with because of the work which I do, um, and I do it with somebody who has been 30 years in the in the pharma industry, and who is now turned into a functional medicine expert, okay? And uh, I also work with a th third generation Ayurved who has done his MBBS, and then he did his Ayurveda, and who's just completing his PhD on metabolic, metabolic disorder. So we, I work closely with all these people, right? So the first and fundamental thing they say about clinical trials itself, research itself, is that that itself is a faulty paradigm, even worldwide. Even the best regulations today, which are carried out through clinical trials and research, itself has questionable um, basis to it. So, sorry, and, and I'll, ex I'll <coughs> yeah. explain why. Yeah, uh, um, just a good. Could you write up quickly, ask a question? Because I just want to go to that gentleman. I've been told we got to... Yeah, but if you want a down. serious discussion, then this is the only way to have a serious discussion. I understand. I but, mean, uh, if it's just a question answer, we're not here for that. No, so, okay. <laughs> so, uh, if, if I may. We are here because there's something I've learned from them and it's fantastic. I get it, but uh, we and, have a time constraint uh, yeah. and I would I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, whether it is so serious discussion... So let me just make a yeah, couple of... Let me finish so what I'm I'll, saying I'll as well. I'll talk to you let after we Yeah, they're here. So one more comment. Just one more comment. Yeah, just hear me out. You know, I'm... I'm not yeah. going to cut you short. Um, what is or isn't a serious discussion isn't something uh, I need to be told or not. Uh, you're welcome to your comment. Uh, because time is a constraint in any situation, anywhere in the world, uh, there is another gentleman waiting with a question. So I'd appreciate it if you can finish yours so I can go to him as well. Because this is deep work, and you can't I understand that. Do take it um, so lightly. I'm not I'm taking sorry. it lightly, but uh, I cannot immerse myself in self-indulgence either. Please ask It's not self-indulgence at all. This Thank is not self-indulgence. You know, I, I'm very serious about what I do. 
Okay. As there, as other restaurants. And just like they are very serious about what they are doing, I, I, I'll, and I we'll, we'll appreciate talk that. After, after we're done, there's no point keeping everybody so here, right? So I have talk. a comment right now, which Please. I just showed my friend right now, Please. from a doctor, Yogesh Bendele, okay. who is based in Pune, okay. and who is doing world-class research in Ayurveda oncology. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's been published in one of the top journals worldwide on cancer. So to, to make a statement that what Ayush ministry is doing or what Ayurveda uh, claims to, to know or understand is really, really very, um, it's just theoretical, theoretical and it has no relevance from a research base. I think that really needs to be studied. There is so much research going on in Ayurveda today. So much research going on. What is needed is lot more, okay? And the reason I juxtaposed it with uh, pharma pharmacology is that pharmacological research itself is questionable in terms of its paradigmic because I work closely with both. That's all I wanted to say. You want to respond? Yes. So, I mean, I'll, I'll just make a couple of points and then, you know, we'll talk right after we're done. There's no point in keeping everybody here for the call. To your question about believing in science or not, I'll just give you two simple examples and I'll stop there because I don't want to justify my position. If science didn't exist, we would still have polio. We would still have deformed babies. If medicine, we, no, please, you, I, I heard what you're saying, so don't dismiss what I'm saying, right? If, if medicine wasn't working, the HIV epidemic that was killing people in six days today allows people to have a meaningful life, primarily because of what the industry did. Now, is the industry kosher? Absolutely not. I would never defend the industry because of what I see happening with the uh, opioid epidemic in, my, in front of my own eyes, right? I will never do that. That does not take away from the fact that, that science actually works. One second, please. Second thing is, is not, I don't believe there's anything called allopathy. It's modern medicine and there's traditional medicine. You can call Ayurveda, different branches of it, that's fine. The, the, the third thing is that, that if you say that, that the standards by which we measure efficacy, which is a the double blind uh, this, uh, 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 randomized clinical trial is not the right way. I'd like the practitioners of, uh, of Ayurvedic medicine to propose an alternative. Let's talk about it, right? What is missing right now is people who, who apparently are the, the proponents of Ayurveda, the Baba Ram Devs, go up on stage, please let me finish go up on stage and basically say, I have a certificate from the World Health Organization that I've done a clinical trial. This happened. This happened in our country, right? All I'm saying is that it's convenient when, you know, when, when it suits you to use the tools of modern medicine to try and justify the quackery that you indulge in and then come back and say, okay, we don't believe in the, you know, in the, 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 what you're doing is, 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 is modern science. I will stop. I can engage with you ad nauseum on this because that will waste everybody. And also, uh, he did go back on his word uh, on what he claimed earlier, Baba Ram, because yeah. we've done a story on that. And then he said, that's not what I meant. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. So I have a very simple question. So yeah. two years back, I you know, ended up eating bottle of lies. And after that, every time I go and buy medicine, it gives me a scare. <laughs> right? Unless the name is Sipla, probably every other name gives me a scare. So as normal users of medicines, how do we figure out what we are getting into? And amongst the lot, how do we know which is better than the others? There is no answer. I don't think I can give you an answer. Because you see, the thing is, in order to answer the question, I have to have data, right? Otherwise, I'll be like Baba Ram there. I can claim anything that I, that I can. I can't give you that answer because the regulator doesn't give me data. If I lived in the United States, right, 
I would actually go to the US FDA website and I can do a research, I can do a background on the company. The US inspectors come to India, inspect our facilities, within 30 days I have access to that report. Indian regulator inspects, I don't get a report. Made in pharmaceuticals, Haryana drug controller inspected in October, I still don't have that report. Why is that? What you can do is ask these questions of your health minister the next time you see him. That if, is how we change this. If I can give you a more practical answer that you won't like. Uh, it would involve just trusting your doctor. If you trust your doctor, because we have seen, I mean, through our conversations with doctors, we know that doctors through their own experience kind of have figured out which brands work, which brands don't work. A lot of people are very cynical about that because there's such low trust in the medical community. They think doctors are all on the take. Few of them definitely are. But this is the only practical suggestion that we can give you in light of the fact that there is no, uh, the government doesn't make available information which you can use to make your own decisions. No, absolutely not. They, they'll be, <laughs> they'll be blacklisted by the pharma lobby itself. So, um, so on that note, thank you so much for thank this book, Krishant. And Dinesh, appreciate it. It must have taken a lot of effort, energy, frustration to... I didn't have so much white hair yeah. and a bald spot <laughs> when I started this. <laughs> so can I suggest an Ayurvedic shampoo to, to turn it black? Please. <laughs> uh, so and thank you all for being a wonderful audience. Appreciate it. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.